1927, studio head Louis B. Mayer had a dream to unite the five branches of the film industry. Actors, directors, producers, technicians, and writers. His dream was to stop them all from unionizing so that he could continue to reap the rewards of their hard work and live the life he had become accustomed to. So he summoned 36 of the most prestigious names of the time to a banquet and explained his plans. And after collecting $100 from each of them, they formed the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. I found that the best way to handle filmmakers was to hang medals all over them. If I got them cups and awards, they'd kill to produce what I wanted, old Louis B. said. And on April 3, 1930, at the Coconut Grove at the Ambassador Hotel, the second Academy Awards was held. And today, many, many years later, Moronic Logic is proud to present Golden Boy! Welcome to the second Academy Awards from 1930. Tonight's nominees for Golden Boy, Alibi by Roland West. In Old Arizona by Irving Cummings. The Patriot by Ernst Lubitsch. The Hollywood Review by Charles Reisner. And The Broadway Melody by Harry Beaumont. Welcome to the second Academy Awards from 1930 and Golden Boy, Episode 2. Not to be confused with the third Academy Awards, which was also held in 1930. They were still trying to figure things out. I'm your host, Kenny. You might know me from Episode 1 of Golden Boy. It premiered a month ago. You might also know me from the Hitchcock Challenge podcast and Presenting Alfred Hitchcock, the YouTube show. Hit the like button, smash the subscribe button. And all of those things, they help us. That show, The Hitchcock Show, we do deep dives into Alfred Hitchcock movies in chronological order. We started with The Pleasure Garden in episode one, and we are currently, we're about five movies in right now. But they're very deep dives. We read uh, books on this stuff. We're doing a lot of research. We're trying to put a ton of information into one episode. This show, not so much. This show is more about watching the movies and deciding, are they still any good? Do we like them? What should have won The Golden Boy that year? They weren't calling them Oscars yet at this point. That's notable. That comes later. So, and also this show, I choose one of my friends, uh, family, uh, one fan. We have one fan. We do have one dedicated fan to this show. They uh, send me about 20 emails a day and they are creepy. But we take what we can get on this show. So that is not the person who is co-hosting this time. Oh, I also want to thank our executive producer, Jessa Goldstein, who does many of the watching of these movies uh, to let me know ahead of time uh, if I'm going to like them or not. And then I watch them and then I decide if I agree with her. I also like to thank Sam and Lance from the Hitchcock show. They were some of the original uh, idea men behind this show by idea man. Men, I mean, we talked about it in a bar a bunch of times. And I would like to thank this week's guest, our second guest on Golden Boy. I might know him from, and actually I messed this up last time. Cyrus was really upset when I said I might know him. So I did write down how I know him. Let me look here. Our next guest I know from 
kindergarten. From kindergarten. That's what I wrote down. Uh, we also co-wrote and co-directed a hit play in high school that was banned and canceled the, uh, the day before. And we did the next year and then it was a hit. And we've also uh, had many, many other numerous uh, misadventures, uh, many too numerous to mention here uh, for this podcast. He holds a PhD in American studies, teaches courses in cinema, literature, and pop culture. I'd like to welcome Robert William Albanese III. I call him Rob. Penny, thanks for having me. Appreciate the intro. Um, I am a reformed academic, and as uh, a professor of mine once referred to himself, a uh, competent dilettante, which means he could say a little bit about a lot of things, but not a lot about anything focused. And I was like, yeah, I'll put that on my LinkedIn. So that's good. That'll get me jobs. I love it. I love it. Yeah. You, also, you also have a photographic memory. I think this is important because yes. you can remember these movies for the rest of your life. Um, I might delete them <laughs> right after this. Like an eternal sunshine of the spotless mind type of a situation. Yes. Yes. Like I'm like going to see if I can do like some sort of black mirror. Uh, it's like offloading that to a server somewhere else. So I don't have to have it. Yeah. It's uh. The second Academy Awards uh, was a little rough. Uh, they were, as I said in the preamble, they were figuring things out a little bit. One thing, well, let me ask you this, Rob, since we did the same schooling together, uh, what do you know about the year 1930? What was uh, happening in the world when this Oscars uh, was done? Well, I think in the US, the biggest thing is the Great Depression. We are a year removed from the stock market crash and in the early throes of the Depression. I think that is relevant to a couple of the films that we'll talk about specifically. So we have one musical and then we have another that is all musical, uh, not even narrative, uh, which I don't know if that is ever repeated in uh, subsequent Oscars. But given the uh, musical genre's uh, connection to the depression, issues of poverty, musical numbers as a way of like kind of almost like wish fulfillment expression. I don't know how much it directly ties to some of the, the two musicals that we'll watch, but there are some connections, but that's the biggest, um, I think touchstone or historical touch point to these films. What about you, Kenny? Yeah. I think one thing that's interesting is about musicals at this time is I'd read, you know, because their sound is like this struggling new medium Musicals mm -hmm. were easier to do because you didn't have to match the sound to the lips necessarily. So they could record these songs and like these kind of big, you know, crazy numbers. And it was a little easier to make it look like it was happening within the movie. Also, it's like, hey, we can do sound now. Let's just put every sound we can make uh, on the screen, you know, like yeah. that in itself was a uh, sort of a reason why you would go go to the movies. Yeah, I think that's majorly significant in this batch of films. You know, last um, first Oscars, what uh, you and Cyrus discussed last week—not mm. last week, last episode—you um, know, feels like last week. The majority of those films were silent films. Was there a sound film in the batch? I feel like no, there were no no sound films. What? Jazz singer. We did the the jazz singer. Yes, it right. wasn't nominated. 
it got its own. It just was given an Oscar because it was uh, the first sound film and the first. It wasn't even the first. These are all technicalities. It was. It did really well at the box office. So, mm-hmm. well, if you think of the first sound film, people at the time would have thought the jazz singer because that's right. the movie they all saw at the movie theater and were like, yeah. "Wow, you know, yes. not a good movie." If you want, no, no. But I think that uh, some of the conversation that you and Cyrus had about the jazz singer is going to uh, figure into another, at least into my thoughts about one of the films that we are that we watched for this week. There's some ugly through lines that are coming through. I know what you're talking about. You know, maybe we'll say I'll save it for when we get there. But I know exactly what you're talking about. And I think one of the other major through lines, which is why we include Coquette into this episode, why there's going to be a discussion on that other movie, is sort of uh, this idea of the fix at the Oscars, like that movies have been fixed or that there's a and one thing I, I want to point out straight off the bat is that first Oscars, I'm positive that that almost that entire show was fixed. Like those were okay. you had 36 people. You had six judges in the room. They're all from each studio. And right. they're basically picking, okay, your movie's going to win this. Your movie's going to win this. And we know for sure that Louis B. Mayer came in and denied the crowd a win for best uh, unique artistic picture and gave it to Sunrise. This Oscars, it's funny because the movie that wins is Broadway Melody, Louis B. Mayer's movie. He didn't win mm-hmm. it. The last one, you feel like, oh, okay, well, now it's my turn to win. You start to see Mary Pickford winning Coquette isn't the only questionable win, I think, at this Oscars as we talk about these movies. And I think the idea that this is like, you know, everyone in the country came together and was like the Broadway Melody was the best movie of the year that, you know, that that's kind of something put a squash on it. This was picked by the people who made these movies. Right. And I think one thing, you know, I know we we're going to bash movies that were made in 1930. And one of the things that don't want to present is some idea that, you know, old movies bad. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I mean, some of this is about this Oscars is the celebration of an immature medium of the sound film. And some of it is people throwing whatever they could against the wall and seeing what would stick. And some of it is just, yeah, limitations of the technology. But the technology at the time was impressive enough that it wasn't seen as limitation. It was seen as innovation. You know, two of the greatest silent films, most celebrated silent films ever made are right around this time as well. The Man with the Movie Camera by Ziga Vertov and uh, Un Chien Andalou by Louis Bunuel. And they're stunning films. I mean, they are not American films, so they would not be eligible for the Academy Award. But I just kind of want to like establish that in the background, that there are some amazing aesthetic and narrative things happening in cinema still at this time, while we are focusing on films that are not aesthetically amazing. Yeah. I, I want to let me back your back you up on that too because I just watched uh, Um Shien Angelou like a few days ago. Yeah, a- excellent, great, like something like uh, out of a David Lynch. You could see David Lynch watching mm-hmm. that and being like, "That's this is some inspiration for him in making his movies now." And the other movie I watched uh, like a week ago was The Passion of Joan of Arc. Mm-hmm. Holy crap! This movie, if it came out in America, probably would have could have been nominated for this right. awards. It's nineteen. 29 it could be an a24 masterpiece if it came out today i just thought it was awesome so and the crowd last week the crowd you know my letterbox review for the crowd is five stars i thought that was actually a fantastic movie highly recommended we're not going to get any spoiler alert guys 
ladies, everybody listening, there's no five star movies this time. Uh, I don't, at least for me, at least for me, there might be a four. There are not any five star movies here for me as well. Okay, yeah, it's a tough crowd. It's a tough clear. It's a it's a tough batch. Tough batch. All right. Yeah, Rob, uh, that was a uh, was a good point about yeah the depressions going on. So also, I was thinking World War II was going on around this time. Do you know uh, what were the years on that? Right, begins in 1939, ends in 1945. The United States enters in at the beginning of 1942 right after the invasion of the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Things uh, overseas in Europe are tense. Are, Probably. are tense and are about to change a lot. Yeah. So we're yeah, we're in the pre pre-war. Speaking of pre, we're in the pre-code era. So a lot of these movies are pre-code uh that we're gonna be talking about, which basically just means things like uh women who are like sleeping with multiple men, kind of that type of thing. Uh you know, sleeping with people outside of wedlock. Uh, there's a lot of, there's a ton of weird arcane rules that Hollywood came up to, with in like the 1932 to 1934. I think by 34, they were enforcing them a bit more. You know, this Hollywood version of life sort of started to become the norm of like these romances and things that us people on the street were not actually experiencing. Right. And one thing is, you know, that looking at it from a 23 23- through a 2023 lens, it's hard to even register what about these films would have been obscene or offensive. Like we, you know, nothing about these seems offensive, but we do have one that um, was subject to a ban in at least one major metropolitan area. Oh yes, yes, this is true. All right, before we get into this movie, I do have one other question for you, and it's the question I ask of all my guests, and that is: Have you seen the movie Babylon? I have not seen Babylon. I have seen the first hour of Babylon. It is one of the um, very few films that I have walked out of a theater on. I do want to watch it again yeah. in its entirety, but not in a theater, not all at once. I, I don't know. I felt like my, I just felt like my life was a little too short for three hours of Babylon in a dark room. Yeah, I gave it two and a half stars on uh, Letterboxd. But last episode, I kept bringing it up. And this episode, I'm going to be bringing it up a few times just because we're in that actual era from that movie. Yeah, I wanted to. A lot of people walked out of that movie in the theater I was in, uh, in that first hour, which was like just aggressively uh, antagonistic towards the audience. You know, it starts with an elephant like pooping on a guy. And that's me putting it as basic as possible. And that might be the only interesting thing that happens in the first hour. Yeah, it's a lot of the camera swinging around. You're watching a lot of debauchery. Every, like, scandalous thing from this time period seems to be happening at this one party. Uh, Everything that was ever in the news, you know, Fatty Arbuckle, like, uh, kills a prostitute and, like, uh, you know, pees on her. Like, everything he's ever done happened in that first scene. Allegedly done. I, I think he was found innocent. Anyways, let's talk movies. Yes, let's do it. Share screen. The Patriot, which is uh, directed by Ernst Lubitsch, as you see in the poster. Lubitsch, uh, unlike the majority of the filmmakers that we'll see here, is a celebrated figure in the history of cinema. And he went, his career spans well from the silent era to the sound era. I think he's uh, most well-known and revered for sound films and doing particularly comedies of manners, for which the phrase, the Lubitsch touch, and I hope I'm not butchering the pronunciation of his last name, that that phrase was coined 
as a way of describing a film with style and elegance and a certain cutting uh, way of looking at the affluent classes. This film, from the three-minute trailer that people can watch, does not seem to have the Lubitsch touch or an interest in it. And yes, this film is lost to history with the exception of a trailer that you can see on YouTube and one third of the film that you can see if you want to go to the University of California, Los Angeles' film archives, and I'm sure jump through several hoops to actually be able to watch the print. And so what we, Kenny, you and I have talked about this a lot. Yeah. What we're going to be dealing with here is four films that, again, spoilers, none of us liked. Neither of us liked the films that we can talk about in their entirety. They have challenges. They all have challenges. Yes. Um, are they challenged enough that we would rather give the golden boy to a film that we not only haven't seen but cannot see because the three minutes of footage that we have readily available is better composed and has the imprimatur of a well-known well-regarded filmmaker yeah this is going to be our i don't know if it's a rubicon or what we got to we definitely have to cross some moral ground here in uh, our choices. I'm interested in what yours is at the end. Oh, just for the folks at home, if if me and my co-host don't agree on the Golden Boy, they both get the Golden Boy. So both movies will get the Golden Boy. We don't have to agree. And I feel like okay. this is one of the toughest ones where us agreeing is, going, like, as you said, we're either picking a movie that's sort of the best of the worst, or we're just like, I cannot support these four I'm going to pick a lost movie. And right. what are we going to pick Schrodinger's cat, basically? Yeah, it's a movie that's here, but not here. It's nominated for Best Picture. So it we it's in the we have the ability to pick it, but we can't see it. I would like to following up on what Rob, what you just said, and something I talked about with Cyrus last time was like what makes for a best picture. Like when you are thinking about best pictures and you're like, well, what are some of the movies? I really like one of the things I landed on and, and I'll let you give me your point of view in a sec is uh, a lot of times it comes down to like directors, it's directors, it's auteurs. It's I love the Stanley Kubrick's of the world. I love the Wes Anderson's of the world, you know, and I go into their movies. Every one of their movies might not be my favorite, but they're all good. One thing I would say about The Patriot and from all of these movies and, and doing a little research in these directors is Ernst Lubitsch probably can be considered an auteur director. You know, a lot of other directors respect him. I haven't seen any of his other movies to compare, but he's been nominated multiple times for Academy Awards. He's going to be at future Academy Awards, uh, some of his movies. Mm -hmm. So whereas some of these other fellas that we're going to be talking about were either, you know, peaked with the movie we're going to be talking about or not. For me, that's another moral quandary in picking this movie from, well, Ernst Lubitsch might be the type of director I like. I don't know. I haven't seen the movie, but... <laughs> So I know, what about you, Rob? Best picture, what, what what springs to mind when you're thinking best pictures? I mean, for me, I'm going to look at artistic vision as sort of like cohesive artistic vision. I have my own biases. I skew dark. Uh, I, mm. I'm certainly more likely to uh, support. I'm trying to remember, Get Out was the same year as Green Book. I believe it was. I know that you will, you will cut in some fact checking at yeah. this point. Golden Boy fact checkers, assemble! Get Out by Jordan Peele was nominated in 2018 for Best Picture, but lost to The Shape of Water by Guillermo del Toro. Green Book by Peter Farrelly won Best Picture in 2019 in an upset, beating out the likes of Spike Lee's Black Klansman and Roma by Alfonso Cuaron. So close enough. Back to you, Rob. But 
regard, I'm more likely to support Get Out than Green Book. I was much more excited for Parasite and Moonlight to win because I do, you know, those films had um, really incisive commentaries and beautifully developed characters and their directors had a, a clear, admirable vision. Yeah, I Triangle think. of Sadness was a movie you really liked, right? That was another kind I, of- Yeah, I loved Triangle of Sadness. And I think that I was um, on board with Everything Everywhere All at Once, which is an entirely wholly original film. And I think that's a huge point uh, as well. Something that's original, something that we haven't seen before. The Patriot, based on you know what I've read of the plot, which let me let me just give for the people at home yes. so they don't have to go to Wikipedia. We do that for you on Golden Boy. We go right to Wikipedia. We tell you what the uh, synopsis of this movie is. In 18th century Russia, the Tsar Paul is surrounded by murderous plots and trusts only Count Palin. Count Palin, we should mention, was nominated for Best Actor for this movie. Another uh, ding for the for the Patriot. Mm-hmm. Palin wishes to protect his friend, the Mad King, but because of the horror of the King's acts, he feels that he must remove him from the throne. This, These these Wikipedia things can go on, so let me just, we're just going to skip a little down here. Countess Osterman apparently is a Palin's mistress, and she lures the Tsar into a bedroom where she tells him of this plot to overthrow him. Countess Osterman was played by Florence Vidor, uh, who is King Vidor's ex-wife. That mm-hmm. might be might be an interesting fact to people. I should also point out that Emil Jannings as Czar Paul One kind of feels like who's that Werner Herzog actor from Aguirre? Klaus Kinski. Yeah, I feel like he's like in the Klaus Kinski. Like this guy is in real life not a good guy. Like he became a Nazi later on. Uh, he made movies with Nazi Germany. A lot of it because he had a thick. German accent, so Hollywood kind of casts him out uh, in, when the sound era starts. This guy feels like a guy who dominates a room, like he walks in, you don't get in his sight lines, you know? This is going to come up again as we talk about sound cinema, silent cinema, acting styles, particularly with Coquette. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, we're, we're, hold on, we're, let me get on to that. I'll just finish yeah, sorry. on the movie. Basically, Palin turns on uh, his buddy, Palin turns on the czar. And then uh, Palin gets turned on. And as he's dying on the floor, he says, I have been a bad friend and lover, but I've been a patriot. I don't know, man. The, the hairs on my arms are just standing up uh, reading that Wikipedia article. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, I, I do wish we could actually talk about this movie and like or, like that we had seen it. We can, for better but mostly for worse, project our own ideas onto this film based on the three minutes that I was able to see, understanding that we're still working within a mature medium, that there's an actual regard for shot composition, uh, light and shadow, some things that, uh, though another film will have have in common, but some of the chiaroscuro lighting that you see in German Expressionism is in here. And it's very easy to take what I like about silent cinema and also the visual aesthetics that have carried over all the way from there into contemporary cinema, into noir, just extrapolate that this would be a better film than the others. And you had mentioned the Lubitsch touch earlier and like in reading on that a little bit, like there's a lot of people who defined it a little differently. It's something a lot of directors and people talked about, but it generally meant something like he would elevate material, you know, and he was known for doing comedy in serious movies, which is something else I love. So that's again, another ding for this movie. I also think, um, 
It's worth mentioning that this was a silent movie, that The Patriot was the last actual silent movie nominated for Best Picture. They added some sound and effects like at the last minute, like they were pushing this in the theaters and they were like, hey, we got to do something quick. But right. as as I mentioned, like uh, what's his name? Jannings had a thick act. They couldn't even use his voice for the movie. It's also basically worth know- noting Hans Kraley, who wrote the movie, won the Academy Award for this movie. Art direction, Hans Dreyer. He was nominated for this movie. He was nominated 22 times in his career. He won three Oscars. So you get a serious art director on this. Lewis Stone, we said, was nominated for uh, Best Actor. Rob, I I hate besmirching people that are long gone, but I read a great story about Lewis Stone from The Patriot that, uh, it's not a great story, it's a sad story, but he died chasing kids. He was 74 and some kids were throwing rocks at his garage and trampling on his garden. And he chased them down the street and had a heart attack. And he was not in Babylon. Did that happen in Babylon? I'm kidding. I remember. <laughs> I didn't see it. I just oh, realized where it And by the way, they did that exact scene in Babylon. No, they didn't, they didn't do that. As you were going through the nominations for this film, I wanted to um, want to mention that one of the distinctions that the 1930 Academy Awards has is that it is the only Academy Awards where not a single film won more than one award. That's a, Rob, actually super good point. I didn't even bring that up at the beginning. Is This is actually, this is the only Academy Award where the nominees weren't even told ahead of time. They only know, the we only know that these are the five movies because the Academy went back and checked the notes of the original judges and saw that these were the movies they were discussing. So like at the time, these people didn't know, which is going to play into the next movie we talk about, Coquette, uh, why Mary Pickford, being one of the judges, uh, kind of knew she was nominated uh, for this role. I also want to point out, The Patriot was put out by Paramount Pictures, and the Broadway melody was done by Louis B. Meyer's uh, is it MGM, mm-hmm. Metro-Goldwyn-Meyer. So yes. when we start talking about the, which we're about to get to, the, the Mary Pickford uh, scandal, I want to keep people keep people in mind that Louis B. Mayer, who fixed the first one, his movie wins the second one. You know, he fixed the first one so a competitor could win. You kind of think we're at the second one. Maybe he's thinking, hey, my movie should win this time. That's just and that's just me not reading anything, just knowing how people work. Guessing. Penny, I, I want to ask you a question. We don't have to go on too long about it now because it's probably just one that's going to flow over the proceedings yeah where do you fall on the can we give a film that we've only seen three minutes of the golden boy very i'm challenged man i didn't rule it out i'll tell you i'll just say that i didn't rule it out okay it's a question that's going to hover over so i was curious about how you felt about it as we start diving into other films you want to jump to coquette Let's jump to Coquette. We're not including this for a Golden Boy Best Picture. We're only talking about this because Mary Pickford, one of the judges, one of the six judges. Let me let me read the scandal to people just so and then you can comment on it. And then I'm going to I want to ask you, Rob, what makes for a best performance in a, in a movie? Mm-hmm. OK, this is by Damien Bona. And he wrote this in The New York Times. The Academy Awards were just a year old when Mary Pickford decided she should have a little gold statuette. Anticipation had been high for Coquette because it was Pickford's initial talking picture and presented her in an adult role for the first time. Pickford had cut off her trademark curls 
which were then sent to Southern California museums. Neither the melodrama nor Pickford's performance was well received. But Pickford was too cagey to let negative notices get in the way. At the time, Academy Awards winners were chosen by the five-member board of judges, and Pickford had the quintet quintet over for tea. An invitation to Pickfair, the estate she shared with her husband, Douglas Fairbanks, was the greatest status symbol in Hollywood, and the committee was duly appreciative, naming Pickford Best Actress at the 1928-29 Awards held in 1930. Protests over this blatant bribery led to the opening of balloting to all Academy members. Voters could still be bought off, but it would take a much greater effort because of more people voting. That's the scandal we're talking about. Rob. Yes. Talk about what you think of when you think of a best performance, please. And then kind of you can segue that into what you think about Mary Pickford and Coquette. I would like to say something about Mary Pickford and Coquette before I answer that, just as a way of framing um, certain things about my answer for a best performance. Pickford, we're catching her in the transition from being a silent film actor to a sound film actor, and some of the things that emerge stylistically and some of the ways that she has a, a challenge transitioning between the two. And some of it has to do with Realism. I don't think that a performance needs to be realistic. A heavily stylized performance is absolutely fine. It's one of the reasons why in um, Best Supporting uh, Categories in particular, Mm -hmm. I uh, kind of wince at the fact that of so many uh, performances that are nominated for Best best Actor, Best Actor, so on, are historical figures. And what we laud the performer for is uh, their ability to inhabit this historical figure, that that becomes and you know, an especially impressive feat. Yeah, I don't I don't look for realism. I think that um, looking for realism in performance or anything about cinema is a mistake. I believe that uh, Hitchcock, in fact, at some point in his career said, if uh, what you are, I'll paraphrase, uh, if what you are looking for in cinema is realism, then uh, maybe you're just in the wrong seat. You're, you know, you should disengage from the medium altogether. I think that goes for performance like anything else. Love the Hitchcock quotes. Keep them coming. That's great, Rob. Yeah. I don't have many. <laughs> <laughs> Still, just carrying one around, though, in your pocket is I I, I, I appreciate that in my heart. All right. Yes, it's important to think of Mary Pickford too. Is just before you you kind of dissect her performance here that this was the first major movie star of Hollywood. Mary Pickford was known throughout the world. She was the first. I read she was the first millionaire, so like female millionaire in the country at the time. It was unbelievable. Control of her finances. She took control of like she was had a head for money. And for getting the the perfect deal, she was. I watched her in one of her early movies, Sparrows, and where she was like thirty two, playing a sixteen year old. And she's every time she's on screen, she's compelling, like a silent movie. Mm-hmm. And I totally right. get why audiences loved her, and why D. W. Griffith, you know, one of the absolute most celebrated, if somewhat complicatedly celebrated, silent film directors. Uh, you know, the auteur behind some of the most important films made in the silent era, you know, why Mary Pickford was his go-to, his DiCaprio or Scorsese, uh, his uh, DiCaprio or De Niro for Scorsese. That's a good, I mean, that's a, that's a perfect 
comparison. I mean, yeah, just they're, you know, they are kind of wedded at the hip. She's pivotal to his success and vice versa. Yeah. So Coquette, what did you think of her performance then? So we got Mary Pickford in the sound era. What do you think of a sound era? Non, not playing a child, uh, Mary Pickford. The first thing that I wrote down was YOLO. Her bringing the, what seemed like the tools of the trade of the silent era, the silent performance, the animation of her physical self, having to convey emotion and character and drive a narrative through body language, facial expressiveness, how what works and is important for silent film performance comes off as just so overinflated and melodramatic, histrionic. She just seems awful. She seems like a really, really bad actor. I, I felt like this movie was so bad too that like I, in some senses, I felt like she was trying to make something out of nothing. Like she was way overacting for scenes that, you know, didn't really call for it, but she was like, I want to show my range. But right. like the movie was like, yeah, that's not that kind of a movie though. Like it's, I couldn't stand it. I think I wrote down in my review of, of Coquette that it was like reefer madness, but for women basically having multiple boyfriends, it was like, don't have, don't have more than one suitor or your father might murder one of them and then he'll murder himself in jail and it'll all be your fault right it's my takeaway from coquette yes and um one of the things that we should note and um i watched it on youtube i'm guessing that you probably did the same and yeah either youtube or the internet archive those are like those okay. are the go-to for these movies it, it is garbled sound on top of terrible performing in service of a bad story all right. Well, we won't. We're not going to belabor the uh, coquette anymore since it's not one. But I, I, I echo your sentiments that I think she. I think we are dealing with a superstar actress who was struggling in a new medium and struggling. You know, probably trying to get a different type of performance that she was seeing being done elsewhere. And it just this was just not the movie for it. And right. it, it kind of just spectacularly flopped. Right. And her, you know, her film credits going forward are. Few and far between. I mean, it, it seems fair to say that the advent of sound film it functionally ended Mary Pitford's career as a working actor. Well, let's let's transfer this to the Broadway melody. And the reason I want to talk about that one next with you is because Bessie Love, uh, the actress in this movie, was also nominated for Best Actress. So while we right. talk about this movie, we can kind of at least because there were there were four other actresses. I think four or five nominated and we didn't see those movies, so, but we did right. see this one. So we can at least compare Bessie Love to uh, Mary Pickford when mm -hmm. we, as we discuss this movie. Roy, let me read my Wikipedia for you folks at home and then I'll kick it to you, Rob. The Broadway Melody, also known as the Broadway Melody of 1929. And this is because apparently they just kept making Broadway melodies. This was just, they did like this like one in 36. I think there's one in 40. Uh, this happens with musicals at that yeah. time. They just keep doing them. It's a pre-code musical film. Oh, it was one of the first early musicals to feature a Technicolor sequence. And that's something this movie didn't have. It's lost. But when we talk Hollywood Review, there's Technicolor in that. So if you're an audience member going to see this movie and that movie, not only are you getting sound, you're getting color. So that's almost a, another double win. And again, we need to remember that sound and color doesn't mean it's a good movie. 
Just like right. with the jazz singer. Sound didn't mean a good movie. So here's the plot. Eddie Kern sings the Broadway melody and tells some chorus girls that he has brought the Mahoney Sisters vaudeville act in New York to perform it with him. Harriet, Hank Mahoney, and their sister, Queenie Mahoney, are awaiting Eddie's arrival in their apartment. Hank, I should mention, uh, I didn't realize that was a, a female name uh, when I was doing this. But however, I loved it so much that we just bought two kittens and we named one of our kittens Hank uh, after Hank Mahoney from the Broadway Melody. So uh, Hank and Zelda, for those of you at home, for actually that one fan that sends me all these emails uh, and wants to, I'll send you some pictures of her, of the two cats. Nearly everyone is captivated, though, by Queenie, Hank's uh, younger sister, particularly a notor notorious playboy Jacques Jacques Warrior there. While Jacques begins to woo Queenie, Hank is upset that Queenie's building her success on her looks rather than her talent. Eddie has a, a big old crush on her, too. We should mention that. And uh, that look, at the end of the movie, uh, Eddie, Hank's boyfriend, uh, dumps her for her younger sister, who he creeps on the entire movie. And it's really, to me, really disturbing. About some of the... Kenny, where do you want me to, do you want me to start with the comparison of um, Pickford and Bessie Love, or should we start with how completely alarming? The let's, let's start with the strength. Let's start with the strength, because I feel like I know what you're going to say I, 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 about Bessie Love. So why don't we start with the strength of this movie? So Rob. Okay. I started this exercise by watching the Academy Award winner. I wanted to understand where the bar was mm -hmm. set with this collection of films and then look back and see where the mistakes were relative to like awarding the Broadway melody best picture. And I think I said to you in a text as we're starting down this road that uh, Bessie Love is the only, for me was the only good thing about this film. She seemed like a person. Uh, she seemed like a person who exists on planet earth and uh, has some sort of range and depth that, was able to convey emotion. Uh, we'll see in um, the Hollywood Review that she is a comic performer. And, you know, here she is part of a vaudeville act, you know, being brought into uh, this musical. But she's able to do comedy. She's able to do drama. Even understanding that we're being positioned to um, admire Anita Page more. She is the um, she's the female lead. Bessie Love's performance definitely transcended that and transcended whatever uh, star making machinations were behind the Broadway melody. How about you? Yeah, I I totally agree. I mean, uh, yeah, look, we're looking at the poster here, and you know, it says with Charles King and Anita Page, Bessie Love's listed third. Watching this movie, I just assumed Bessie Love at first was the the lead of the movie. Every scene she's mm -hmm. in, she steals Queenie Anita Page. Nothing against her, but like, I don't really remember much about what she did other than like be lusted after by every man in the movie. Bessie Love is like, she's got this quick dialogue. Like she, she, she delivers her lines like really forcefully and great, just a well-lived in character. Like, and you, I immediately was like sympathetic with her. I'm like, she is awesome. Like this, you know, her arc in this movie is terrible. It's terrible. And the movie wants you to root for the worst possible thing. The movie doesn't even acknowledge that. The movie is just like, oh no, we want Eddie, Hank's boyfriend to fall in love with her younger sister like the that's the love story that the audiences are clamoring for and I'm like what audience like that's horrible and gross 
I really wonder what if there was sort of like the IMDb Rotten Tomatoes user reviews of this film at that moment in time, how many might actually say, hey, are we rooting for this man to fall in love with his fiance's sister and have that be a positive outcome? It was really gross. It was really gross seeing that. And to even know it from the very beginning, I was struck when Eddie sees Queenie for the first time after however many years, there is a shot that's sort of like a classic um, silent film shot or like star making close up of mm-hmm. Queenie, soft lens. She's framed by soft light. It reminded me of, you know, this is going into some like film theory 101 stuff, but uh, Laura Mulvey who wrote the essay uh, Visual Pleasure and Narrative Cinema, talks about the male gaze, you know, this idea that is now like completely circulated through culture. The idea of, you know, when you were watching popular narrative cinema, or most, that you were placed in the subject position of the protagonist, the male protagonist, and that the way that we look at women on screen is implicitly the way that he looks at women on screen. And so we are being sort of like sutured into desiring her the way that he was and thus rooting for that. And to see Bessie Love's performance as the superior of the two is actually working outside of what Harry Beaumont and all the other um, producers, writers of this film want us to support. Rob, I love it. This is why this is why having uh, someone with a PhD on this show really elevates our material. Uh, so we're not just, uh, you know, I, I liked our accent. That's this is good, uh, good material, Rob. I don't find anything remarkable about Anita Page's performance. I did read somewhere in the content, you know, in a contemporary reviews that people who saw the film and critics of it, they definitely found her performance favorable. Her arc is also really boring. I thought that I was uh, being thrown into a Theodore Dreiser novel, um, that we were going to watch um, her be corrupted by wealth, and whether it was going to be Eddie or um, Hank, we're going to uh, become further mired in poverty as we kept careening towards the Great Depression. That ultimately what we were looking at was her betrayal of the people who cared about her and her family and this other person who pined over her. So before we, before we finish our uh, takedown of this movie, why don't we take a golden boy break? Bessie Love, Mary Pickford. Who's getting the golden boy? Bessie Love, no question. Bessie Love, hands down. And the golden boy goes to Bessie Love for playing Harriet Hank Mahoney. Yep, these awards were fixed. They made they made the right choice. We made the right choice. Uh, Oscars made the wrong choice. Uh, Kenny, since we're, what did you think of the musical numbers? Compared to Hollywood Review, this was worse. This was there were like three or four songs and they just kept playing them over and over and over again. And they weren't even memorable. Like you leave the movie. I don't remember how the Broadway melody went. You know, he sings at the beginning. They play it like two or three more times. No, no earworm at all compared to, we're going to talk about Hollywood review. You get singing in the rain, which is now featured mm. in like many movies uh, afterwards. And we're about a year away from um, Busby Berkeley's first work as a choreographer in cinema and uh what i'm most familiar with busby berkeley was the work it's one of the films that i watched in like film history you know 200 as uh 
the gold diggers of 1933 and this is another one of these musicals that becomes a series of musicals and his musical numbers are so lavish they are it's a think you can fairly credit berkeley with translating musical theater to cinema and actually like taking advantage of the dynamism of the camera and bringing it to the medium and that's not what the Broadway melody does. And it's not what the Hollywood review does. We're not there at the point where a musical can actually, you know, you can see how cinema activates it. For anybody who has seen The Big Lebowski, by the way, and is not familiar with uh, Busby Berkeley, uh, the musical number that occurs in that dream sequence with the dude, what condition my condition is in sequence, that's a direct homage to Busby Berkeley. The Coen brothers have said as much. Oh, that's great. What's the movie you recommend? Uh, the third 1933 movie? Watch the Gold Diggers of 1933, which is also more overtly about the Great Depression. I'm writing this down, even though uh, I'm going to edit this later and hear you say it about 70,000 times before our fans do. Our fan. <laughs> but yeah, okay. no, I, that's a. Uh, before we move on to but, uh, Bessie Love, it is worth pointing out, though, that this movie, although her, the fate of her character is not good in it, uh, in real life, well, it earned her a nomination for Best Actress, but also the success gave her a five-year contract with MGM, where her salary went from five hundred to three thousand dollars, which is the equivalent of fifty-one thousand in two thousand twenty-two, and that was a thousand more than her co-star Eddie. So, uh, yeah. actually, making more money than the male lead of this movie. So. Well, and she continues working for a mu- for a much longer period of time than um, than her contemporaries here she was in dw griffith's intolerance but she's in the hunger the film that tony scott directed about vampires that features david bowie uh i think that is her last film in 1983 oh wow what a career right you know she was a she was a bit player in it but she is you know she remains a working actor a rare good story a lot of these actors we get you know they fall on their lawn chasing kids Before we move to the next one, I just want to point out, because talking about auteur directors, the director of this movie was Harry Beaumont. He was also nominated for Best Director. He was an American film director, actor, and screenwriter. There was something interesting about him. No, there wasn't. The Broadway Melody was the pinnacle of his career. He continued directing, mainly at MGM, into the 1940s, but none of his subsequent films rose above the B level, whatever that means. When we think of an auteur director... Uh, if you want, if if you're the type of person who thinks uh, that Harry Beaumont is, then this is his best movie. So this is what we got to work with with Harry Beaumont. So again, just something to think about. Well, and this is also where we are. Um, you know, the specter of the Patriot hanging over the other films. Yep. What we know about Ernst Lubitsch and his career and the success and the influence. Something to think about. Just. To- Hollywood Review from 1929. What's interesting about this movie is I saw this before Broadway Melody. So I'm very confused when like they're talking about the Broadway Melody in it. When they're like, oh, now we got Bessie Love singing their song from the Broadway Melody. I'm like, the movie, the other movie that's also nominated. When in Oscar history has a movie talked about one of the competitive movies, like in Everything Everywhere All at Once, if they were just like, suddenly in Top Gun Maverick in one of their realities. <laughs> like, what a weird, <laughs> weird crossover. Hollywood Review was a pre-code musical 
comedy film released by MGM, studio's second feature-length musical and one of their earliest sound films. Uh, it has three segments in Technicolor. Unlike MGM's imposing feature films, which always boasted strong story values, the Hollywood Review of 1929 was a plotless parade of variety acts. Billed as an all-star musical extravaganza, the film includes performances by once-in-future stars, including Joan Crawford singing and dancing on stage. Other segments feature Lionel Barrymore, Buster Keaton, Bessie Love, and Anita Page. Highlights of the film are a comedy, we'll, we'll decide on this, comedy routine starring Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy as one of their, this is one of their earliest, if not their first sound appearance. Laurel and Hardy, as Cyrus mentioned in the last episode, uh, he prefers them to Charlie Chaplin. I got some questions on that one. I'm not sure I agree with him. One of these uh, musical performances that of note is the debut of Singing in the Rain, performed by Cliff Edwards as Ukulele Ike, and later performed at the end of the film by the entire cast. The latter all-star color sequence was a last-minute addition to the film, shot late at night on June 10th, just 10 days before the premiere at Grauman's Chinese Theater. Uh, only three MGM stars were not in the review. So basically, they got everyone on the lot, and they were like, we're doing this. Rob, what do you think? What, what are the odds you're going to choose this as best picture? Don't don't spoil, but give us some gambling odds. Like, are we, are we talking... Um, I mean, it really, really long, really long odds. Okay. Um, it's incredibly long odds. I'll take those odds at this Oscars. It is hard to even compare the Hollywood Review to the other films in that. Yes, it's not narrative. It's a non-narrative film. It is a well-edited videotaping of a high school variety show. I wrote that down. High school talent show. Because the yeah, camera it's, work it's, is basically, it's it's almost, it's just like they just put it on a tripod and we're like, here we go. And, and there's something interesting about that, um, just as far as like, the advent of sound cinema. But Kenny, did you watch this in one sitting? Because I don't know if like, there was a rule that we're supposed to watch these in one sitting, but I did not watch this in one sitting. No, you can watch it in any uh, any manner as long as you watch it. Well, I watched it in several settings. I don't blame you on that. I did watch it in one sitting, and it was a painful sitting. There's a lot in this to break down, and we could be here all night talking about it. What's like? What's what's a standout? What was a good segment? That what was something you liked, or something you feel is worth talking about? Joan Crawford's performance is interesting as a curiosity. She does have um, a star power that you can understand would propel a very successful career. She does not. Joan Crawford does not seem at this point like the person who would star in Mildred Pierce, but she's got a magnetism about her. I thought that the Romeo and Juliet bit, you know, the color piece of it was um, kind of interesting. Thought that the singing, you know, maybe it's just because singing in the rain is a great song. I liked that okay. But beyond that, and just sort of thinking of this film as a um, a celebration of the technology more than anything else, I can't recommend anything. I'm interested to hear your Laurel and Hardy and Buster Keaton thoughts that you've had to build up a little bit earlier. All I'm going to say on Buster Keaton is it's an embarrassment for him to have been in this movie. If he, uh, I watched the Steamboat movie recently. Yes. And- I thought that movie was fantastic and he's really great in it. And I, I haven't seen a ton of Buster Keaton movies, but I really do appreciate him as an actor. And this is just, 
it was an embarrassment. Like he does this improvised dance that is just not funny. It's really bad. It was bad. Laurel and Hardy, I I feel like they're doing their shtick and it just, for me, was not funny. So here are the things I liked in the Hollywood Review. Two things. I liked Singing in the Rain, I think, like you said, is just like a classic. Like that's, it's amazing that these people heard this song for the first time. And for so, like for me, the first time I think I saw it in a movie was probably in A Clockwork Orange. Because I didn't watch Singing in right. the Rain until much later, that movie. Uh, yes. So I'm coming from a, a spot where, you know, at the time watching Clockwork Orange, I'm like, oh, I love this movie. And I love Singing in the Rain in that movie, the use of it. So like I'm already partial to that song. I, that's a song that you know that that gets in your head, and I'm I'm fine with it being in my head. What's interesting about the second performance of uh, Singing in the Rain in this movie is in the movie Babylon they totally redo that scene where you see all of the Brad Pitt and all the actors, Margot Robbie, they all have to wear those same raincoats and perform this ridiculous uh, scene. And it's funny reading that that was thrown together at the last minute. Because I feel like the reality is probably exactly the way it is in Babylon, where they were like, we need you guys all at the set. We're doing a thing today. And they're all like, I don't want to be in it. And they're like, here's your raincoat. And you're like, what are we singing? And, you know, and Buster Keaton's there. And they're like, oh, you know, Lon Chaney was one of the guys who wasn't there. And I just think it's funny that he's probably just like, yeah, no, no, I will not be doing that. The, the Lon Chaney bit is marginally funny where they're like all dressed as like monsters and they're singing about how lon cheney uh what was it is it real it's like lon cheney isn't real oh yeah he appears and he's real it's like oh no no lon cheney isn't an actual person he's not here to scare you but he's creeping over uh jack benny jack benny probably hilarious at the time but i just think everything he's doing now is like offensive like the main joke in the show is like oh he slept with every woman and, and like whenever they mention it to him, like, oh, didn't we meet in this town? And, ah, I got to get out of here. Like, that's the joke that you slept with these women and then ditched them. Yeah, I think he does it with Bessie Love. He does it with like everybody. I want to talk about real quick. My favorite part of this, again, people's miles may vary. And I'll play a little bit of this uh, for you, Rob, while we do this. The Adagio dance with the Natova company. This dance I thought was fantastic. And it was like, there's some of the moves that she does in it are just absolutely like sitting in my seat, like they're going to kill her, like with what, with some of the maneuvers. So I wanted to look up about her and there's nothing like on the Wikipedia, like they don't talk about it. Jack Benny makes a bunch of like uh, snide jokes about her. Like oh, I'll be meeting her at the hotel afterwards. But I think what, this is a really interesting dance. I looked a little bit into this girl. Uh, her name was Natasha Natova. She, came to Paris from war-torn Russia and became one of Europe and America's most daring and graceful adagio dancers during the jazz age. Adagio is, uh, it's like slow and folding movements in ballet performed with great amount of fluidity and grace, which is kind of what we see her doing here. She was in control of her entire show. She did all the costumes. She did all the choreography. She's like 25 in this when she's doing this. And she was brought to New York, Greenwich Village, did a really popular show. It went to Chicago and she ended up taking it to California, which theoretically, what I read from one of her fan pages, theoretically, they just saw her show and were like, hey, let's just throw this in the Hollywood Review at the last minute, you know? And it's funny because it's actually someone with talent at the talent show. And I I just felt like, you know, people are going to talk about Laurel and Hardy and all this other stuff that's like not that great. 
But like this girl who's like forgotten to history and just got thrown into a movie that was nominated for an Oscar did some like amazing acrobatic dancing that like I I just thought was stunning. She was a fiery, fiery, fought with a lot of people, had a lot of accidents on the stage, as you can imagine, doing that, those type of maneuvers. I think she was knocked unconscious once where they dropped her straight on her face. So, I mean, there's real danger in that. And I just, I really appreciate it. And I just wanted to highlight it while we're doing it. Because afterwards, I'm like, I have to look this girl up. And then, you know, when you start looking them up and you're like, I can't find anything on Wikipedia, you start to be like more mad and like, I'm going to find more about this person. Right. Great. To me, that was the standout part. Take out Jack Benny's crappy commentary over it. I had one of the weirdest, I I think this is going to be strange a bit that uh, jumped out to me as remarkable was in fact the intermission where we are just watching the orchestra play in, you know, medium long shots. Camera does not move. It is just, okay, here's some interstitial music. Uh, At that moment, more than anything else, I was struck by how this film might be like a 1929, 1930 equivalent to virtual reality. I, I see where so, you're going with this. Right. So it is like, okay, you know, we are celebrating the technology. You know, how immersive can cinema be? And how immersive can sound cinema be? And even though there's no camera movement, it's not dynamic in any way. It is dropping you as a viewer into the uh, spectator position of somebody who is in the theater watching this again, high school talent show. I don't know, a proof of concept of the technology that it could immerse you in some sort of live performance experience. That interested me perhaps more than any of the actual numbers. Yeah, it's an interesting idea, but it's just as a movie for best picture, it's- Sure, these are, these are the things that we hook into in order to endure this exercise that you have yeah. roped me into and that you have roped yourself into for, uh, at the rate we're going, um, yeah, 10 years, maybe? Cyrus thought 17. I feel like it'll be less than that. I think 10 is okay. closer to reality. It'll probably be one a month. I don't know. Someone at home, do the... Where's where's my fan? Let me. I can't look into the camera. Fan, find out how many years we're going to be doing this and put in one of those creepy emails. <laughs> <laughs> let's... Okay. Rob, let's move to the next movie. I, I, I know you're... You're chomping at the bit to talk about Alibi, right? Penny, I have so little to say about Alibi. Again, I don't want to turn this into a Mystery Science Theater 3000 thing. You know, it's important that you and I try to contextualize these films and look at what is positive about them. Yeah. And Alibi does have some moments, but I found it to be the least remarkable of all of these. Oh, wow. Less remarkable than Hollywood Review? Of 1929? Yes. Not necessarily worse than the Hollywood Hollywood Review. There's just nothing going on. You know, what were some of your um, let, let me give you a know, couple finer points. point thoughts about Alibi? All right, I got a few. Uh, 1929, We in the last Oscars, we me and Cyrus had to watch a movie called The Racket, which was... It's, so it's interesting that two Academy Awards in a row, they're putting these pre-code kind of crime gangster movies. This movie, Alibi... I think was better. I'll say this first was better than the racket. I didn't like the okay. racket one bit. Uh, alibi, okay. and that's not to say that I think the alibi uh, alibi is fantastic. It's just better than the racket, which is not saying much. Alibi, just for you folks at home, uh, <coughs> courtesy of our friends at Wikipedia, 
I hope we're all donating to Wikipedia. I know they're periodically looking for money. Joan Manning, the daughter of a police sergeant, secretly marries Chick Williams, a gang leader who convinces her that he is leading an honest life. Chick attends the theater with Joan and at the intermission sneaks away, committing a robbery during which a policeman is killed. Chick is suspected of the crime, but is able to use Joan to substantiate his alibi. The police plant Danny McGann, an undercover agent in Chick's gang, and he's so convincing as a drunk, Chick McGann. We can talk about him in a minute. But they actually, they figure it out that he is an undercover agent and they murder him. Uh, Chick is later cornered <laughs> by the police in his own home. Before they can arrest him, he flips the light switch, plunging the room into darkness. In the midst of the chaos, Chick escapes to the roof. He jumps to a nearby building, but stumbles on the landing, falling to his death. Chester Morris, playing Chick Williams, was nominated for Best Actor in this movie. And this movie also got an art direction uh, nomination for William Cameron Menzies. Let's talk about that death scene, that undercover that undercover agent 10-minute death scene. Do you remember this? Where oh, I sure do. Fellas, fellas, I'm dying. Like, I feel like that's been lampooned so many times that maybe nobody knows this is where it starts. Like, this is the first, the guy who just won't die, who's di- he's dying. Right. He just has I mean, a few more things to say. But, Chief. I mean, is it, you know, is Tim Roth drawing from this performance in Reservoir Dogs? <laughs> <laughs> I think that that's uh, worth pursuing. That there, I think there might be some truth in that. I think. Possibly. Um, you know, because they're very similar performances. Um, no, no, that was agonizing. Not nearly as agonizing, though, um, and not nearly as funny to me as the way that Chick, when he is being held up by the police officer, I forget the character's name, going to avenge his fallen fellow officer's death. I'm going to shoot you in the back. When you turn your back, that's when you will die. So you better not turn your back. I hope to never be confronted with this kind of uh, threat. but. If the way that I save myself is just by never turning my back on the gun, it was so, so utterly preposterous. Who are you rooting for in this movie? The police are horrible. They're corrupt. Ruthlessly interrogating this that one guy in the, in the office where they're like, we're going to kill you. They're basically threatening to kill him if he doesn't just cough up Chick. And then like at the end, yeah, that, whole, that, that sequence. And then you got Chick, who I thought at the beginning, I'm like, well, maybe this guy is innocent. And that's going to be an interesting thread it's like now by by mid film you're just like nah this guy's a scumbag you know don't root for him which speaking of we talk about best performances i thought he had presence of all the actors in this movie the actor playing chick but that's not an academy award performance no yeah you're right he does have he does have some star power you can see how somebody would watch alibi and see his performance and maybe say with a better script and better direction you could draw something special out of him. He looks the part. He looks like a classical Hollywood star. When the film started, and this is coming off of the Broadway melody, which I knew I did not like um, when it ended, I'm like, okay, we're moving into a genre that I care for a little bit more. There's a skews dark, uh, literally, as well. You get some of the um, chiaroscuro lighting you know, that we associate with films noir. Uh, that will carry through into the uh, film noir heyday 
of the 40s, there is some attempt to use the medium and particularly some of the more mature elements of silent cinema, cross-cutting, like the use of the watch that we were playing with time, playing with time through editing and cross-cutting. Then the film just became uninteresting. That art direction too, you know, as much as I do appreciate like the German expressionism, I love Murnau, last Oscars, and we're talking about Wait, which one was which one had some of that for this? Oh, the Patriot we were talking about had a from Patriot that. has a little bit. Yeah, but I felt like this felt very still like amateur, almost like a copy. Like this was like someone who liked Murnau a lot and was just like, I'm just going to try and do some of the same things, but without the deeper layers of meaning or without like any, you know, it's just kind of cut and paste. Like, oh, I see what he does. I like it. I'm doing it, but it doesn't have any depth or meaning like okay it looks interesting this movie's not good though right you know before uh before i realized that i really disliked alibi i you know and as i was just kind of weighing it against the broadway melody it was these were the two first films i saw to what extent should i ascribe greater value to a film like alibi because it aesthetically does things that i care about Mm-hmm. I care about the setting of mood through, you know, through mise-en-scene and cinematography, and that's not something that the Broadway melody cares about. Is it fine for me to take my own personal taste and, you know, sensibilities that I've acquired and bits of cinema history that have survived into 2023 in interesting ways and say, because of that, Alibi is a better film than the Broadway melody. I batted that question around a little bit at first, and then I stopped batting that question around. I could see why, you know, you might want to rank this higher than the other ones just for those reasons. But it's just, yeah, the story, the direction. I, the, I want to mention the director, Roland West. Is he nominated for anything? No. Roland West, uh, American film director known for his innovative proto film noir movies of the 20s and 30s. He's best known for possibly murdering a Hollywood actress, Thelma Todd, in 1935. Uh, I actually watched a documentary on that murder a couple of days ago, on that supposed murder, a doc- YouTube documentary, where it was he was in like some weird uh, three-way relation. Him and his wife were dating this woman, Thelma, and she was living like at a house that they paid for above a bar that they were all partners on. And uh, I, yeah, I, it sounded like, you could draw some conclusions that he had something to do with her death for sure. And I'm just thinking, of course he did. You know, this kind of, the reason I like auteur directors is because you're getting their, you're getting Werner Herzog's like, this is the inside of his brain, you know, and you're relating to this, this is like, these are his dreams, his fears and good auteur, good directors. You're getting that alibi. I'm getting a killer's like just dark, stupid fantasy. Like it's just, yeah, this is if Patrick Bateman directed a movie. You know, he's making like <laughs> alibi. Cued <laughs> it up a little bit earlier um, that the city of Chicago was also not a fan of alibi uh, in that it banned alibi uh, for criminality, uh, immorality, and depravity. I imagine that somewhere the um, specter of Al Capone hovered over the city of Chicago's decision to ban alibi. Oh, for sure. I think the racket was actually banned by the city of Chicago. I think if you're doing a, a gangster movie, Chicago was just like, nope, not we nothing to do with us. <laughs> like, look somewhere else. We know we're not showing that movie in our city. Alibi's a better movie than the racket. Alibi is not a good movie. Take what Fair. you 
Let's move to the last one. All right. In old Arizona is a 1928 American pre-code Western. The film, which was based on the character of the Cisco Kid in the 1907 story, The Caballero's Way by O. Henry, was a major innovation in Hollywood. It was the first major Western to use the new technology of sound and the first talkie to be filmed outdoors. It made extensive use of authentic locations. And here's what it was about. In Arizona, a bandit known as the Cisco Kid robs a stagecoach. Word of his deed reaches Sergeant Mickey Dunn, who's tasked by his superior to bring in the Cisco Kid, dead or alive, with a $5,000 reward promised if he does. The Cisco Kid is in a relationship with Tanya Maria and visits her often. He loves her, but she has frequent affairs without his knowledge. Dunn and Maria meet. This is the uh, sergeant. And they have an affair. Dunn tells Maria that he'll give her all the money when they uh, capture or kill the Cisco kid. So she decides to uh, betray him. She writes a secret letter to Dunn telling him to come that evening to take down the Cisco kid. The Cisco kid intercepts that letter and changes it, saying that he, he will be dressed up in Maria's clothes and Maria will be dressed as the Cisco kid. Dunn gets the letter, thinks Maria wrote it, shoots Maria, just just sees a woman at the door and shoots her. And uh, Cisco kid gets away. Okay, Rob, I know you have a lot of thoughts. Where do you want to start with this movie? I, I think that this is narratively and visually the most coherent and sophisticated of the films that we've watched. Knowing that it is the first sound film to do uh, location and outdoor um, sound, synchronous sound, it has a more, uh, I don't know, a larger obstacle against it than something like the Broadway melody. And I think it is it surpasses that obstacle more successfully. There is not any point where it was, it just seemed the most technically polished. Yeah. I thought the narrative actually was, you know, it's familiar. It's, you know, it's familiar Western uh, bad man comes into town and the lawman is tasked with taking him down. But there's some complexity there. I started this thinking that the Cisco kid was going to be the villain and that Dunn was going to be the protagonist of the film who we would root for. And it happens fairly subtly um, where you realize actually he's the more morally corrupt and selfish and just kind of icky figure. And the Cisco kid is, um, you know, it's portrayed by Warner Baxter who ends up winning best actor what did you think about it in terms of plot and construction no i agree with you i think we're we're, we're based on like what i'm guessing is a successful story oh henry is a you know a well-known author and the cisco kids yes. character so you're, you're kind of starting with actual good material you know you're this has been tried and tested and i don't know how close this hedges to the story it's based on i don't know if they took a lot established of established ip yeah, it's established IP. Yeah, so okay, we're we're off on good footing. It was well directed compared to like I have criticisms of the Hollywood Review, you know, being a tripod on a camera. I have criticisms of Alibi, feeling like this this passionless, uh, just uh, trying to look interesting recording. I thought Broadway Melody was kind of like, you know, you don't come walk away from that thinking you actually think they failed some of the musical performances in it. Whereas I feel this movie feels, like you said, it's like a kind of complete, like this is a strong movie. And I also would say Werner Baxter, who won Best Actor, did a ton more than the actor in Alibi. Werner Baxter had like a charisma as a Cisco kid and like... He's funny and charming. 
funny and charming. Exactly. I think uh, that this starts to lead us into the. Uh, all right. So he's doing an accent, first of all. And it's uh, it's an accent that I've read kind of started this whole uh, people talking this way in playing, uh, I guess, Mexican characters or, or Latino Mexican characters. Tanya Maria. Uh, I had a little bit more, like, I felt like a little bit more uneasy with her performance than uh, probably Werner Baxter's. I agree. Yeah, she's she's cartoonish and in such overly sexualized and promiscuous. And there seems to be an, an anti-ethnic component to that. Yeah, I felt like it was cartoonish. I felt like she was over the top and she... Well, the accent felt not authentic to me. It felt like, you know, it felt like someone with a script just really going ham, going going to town with it. It teetered on a white actress doing an impression of Rosie Perez in White Man Can't Jump. Again, I, I don't know this history. Like we talked, so we talked about with the jazz singer, you know, obviously blackface is terrible. I did not like the movie because of it. I found it offensive watching it and I never want to see it again. This movie... It has some cultural appropriation and we have cultural invention, maybe. I, I don't know. Are they like, is this this thing that Werner Baxter is doing as Cisco Kid? Is this like, is did he learn this somewhere? Is he like being coached? I'm wondering. Or did he just like kind of. Or is it a simulacrum? Is this an idea of like the Mexican bandit that never actually existed? Is it like, is it a caricature? Is it a caricature without historical, like, you know, at legitimate historical reference points i don't know either well i didn't feel necessarily offended i felt like a little uneasy about it like watching it like i don't know what i should be thinking about this right i think like where this where this differs from the jazz singer is blackface is actually narratively significant in the jazz singer the wearing of blackface is important and in some ways important in a very positive way it is like an important means for him to unlock doors for himself within the jazz milieu and that's really gross Mm -hmm. this is also really gross it is a really gross practice that hollywood has been embarking in in one way or another since its inception and continues to not necessarily um white actors wearing brown face but um white actors being cast in non-white roles john turturro italian actor plays you know the big lebowski is not my favorite film uh but i'm going to reference it for the second time but plays the jesus who, who is absolutely a latino character we have this in other films as well um plenty of other films that you know the casting of white performers in non-white roles and there have been you know proper rebellions against that within the industry and among fans this is all very slippery slope trying to compare the two and say one is worse than the other but i agree with you that i wasn't offended in the same way as i was with the jazz singer yeah i think you're right i think though this leads that slope to a lot of there's a lot of probably bad movies that were absolutely offensive that came out of this movie where they were parroting what was done here and sure you know i I, because i know in the future having watched a lot of westerns uh 
from my dad having them on television uh, when I was a kid, that you're going to see a lot of uh, white actors wearing yellow face or dressed as, uh, you know, just offensive, clearly offensive uh, Native Americans. Yes, right. And that lineage kind of feels like right around here is where we're we're starting that up now, you know, and uh, it's going to lead to some bad stuff. And, you know, even this, the the Mickey Dunn guy kind of felt like a proto John Wayne kind of uh, type of character. Well, and Raoul Walsh is credited with discovering John Wayne. Oh, wow. I didn't read that. Yeah. Yep. Um, you know, looking up uh, looking up the directors of these films, kind of as you did to see who, like, actually had a remarkable career. And I think ultimately we were stress testing the idea of did anybody have a remarkable career besides Ernst Lubitsch? Yeah. And Raoul Walsh comes closest. Um, as Yes, discovers John Wayne. He ends up directing, um, and I don't have the list in films of films in front of me, but he directs James Cagney. He directs Humphrey Bogart at some point in his career. Clark Gable. Um, he is, you know, actually has a career that endures, not in the same way as Lubitsch, but um Well, here here's actually what's funny on this movie. Uh, interesting tidbit is this movie has two listed directors because as Raoul Walsh and Irving Cummings, who ended up being nominated for best director for this movie, because Raoul Walsh was set to direct and star in this movie. Uh, but it, according to this Wikipedia article, he had to abandon the project when a jackrabbit jumped through the windshield of a vehicle he was driving, right. resulting in him losing an eye. He never acted again, but continued his successful career as a film director. So we ended up not even getting to finish direct. I he probably did some preliminary work when the accident happened. And then this guy, Irving Cummings, who finished the movie or, you know, I, again, who knows the percentages? He went on to direct. He was best known for his musicals, many of which featured Betty Grable or Shirley Temple, which is kind of interesting because that's like totally not this movie. Well, let me go back. Let me backtrack for a second while you're looking that up to to Werner yeah. Baxter, he, American film actor from the 1910s to the 40s. Uh, he frequently played womanizing, charismatic Latin bandit types in westerns, and played the Cisco Kid or a similar character throughout the 1930s. But did have a range of other roles throughout his career. And I've seen pictures of him not in the makeup, and he is just you know just a white dude, uh, to put it bluntly. We don't know the genesis of this you know how he comes up with this where this is he basing on something beforehand i don't i'm not fluid enough in cinema at this time in the western genre to say but i can say again while this wasn't necessarily as offensive as something like the jazz singer i i could totally see this being the seed that turns into a horrible thread in future hollywood i don't know to me it seemed it's just evidence it is evidence of a far more um pervasive problem within Hollywood, pervasive and persistent. I've wrestled with that a lot, how far I would take what I'm sure anybody who is listening to this still, at least your one fan, can obviously tell that I feel far more favorable about this film than any of the others that we saw the entire thing. But yeah. it has this one thing. It's serious. Yeah, we had a we had a tough we have a tough choice with these uh with these movies. They all have something that kind of stops it from being elevated to great, and more more of the more of them have things that elevate them towards uh 
you know, please mind wipe me. Kenny, maybe there's one thing, you know, again, I know we, you know, this is kind of maybe preempting some of the drama behind the Golden Boy reveal. But, you know, we talked, we derisively talked about what a bad collection of films this is. Let me, let me start giving you some Golden Boy, uh, some of the list. Number five is the Hollywood Review of 1929. I just cannot pick a variety show, a high school variety show as best picture in good conscience at all. But so you're including the Patriot in here. I'm including the Patriot in these five. Yeah. So before yeah. Hollywood Review, uh, the Patriot, uh, I would pick the Patriot. I'm number four on my list is going to be the Broadway Melody. I cannot pick this movie, despite Hank, the character Bessie Love, absolutely fantastic as in one character in the movie. But just thematically, the fact that these filmmakers wanted this horrible thing to happen. I can't can't back this movie. I would say, and Alibi is my third. My two top picks for the possible winner for a Golden Boy in the second Academy Awards are In Old Arizona and The Patriot. These are my these are the two vying for the spot. I, whichever one I pick, I will make a case for when I do. Give me your give me your five, uh, starting with number five. I I felt incapable of saying I'm going to insert this film that I've only seen three minutes of, much of which are stills of, you know, floating heads with their names over them and a and, and uh, subtitles or uh, captions telling me why these people were stars. Uh, I, I did not rank it. I am going to um, try to play out that intellectual exercise. I would agree with you that the Hollywood Review is five it's just maybe maybe i am projecting my own belief on what should be nominated for a uh, an academy award best picture in the first place mm. but uh, a variety show is not something that i would do that for and in fact the emmys uh you know they have a an award reserved for variety shows um number four for me is alibi i just thought it was an atrocity uh, outside of the first 10 minutes i just thought it was an absolutely miserable miserable watch and so here is where i get to the point where i am stymied by this uh insertion of the patriots i was without the patriot in there would be me choosing between broadway melody and in old in old arizona i'll just all right before we get our golden boy uh awards out what i've been also doing as i go through these is i've made like a master list so like for the golden boys i did with uh cyrus so this kind of is what helps me with thinking about my rankings a little bit. So for the first Academy Awards, there were only four movies that I thought had any merit, which I would love if we could say four movies had merit from this one. And it was like, I thought The Crowd, clear number one. I thought The Circus by Charlie Chaplin was like number two, Sunrise by Murnau. And um, the fourth one was Wings by William Wildman. I thought those four movies were all interesting and again, they fit my internal criteria of like, these are directors that I think are worth it. I, everything else was like, there was a hard line that's like, these are all terrible. Right. So I'm looking at this Oscars we're doing and I'm trying to fit them in there. And I'm like, well, where are these compared to what I watched there? And I'm like, any of those top four from that first Oscar, I'm, they were the one, this one. The, if it were Wings in this one, oh yeah, Wings is hands down going to win this one. If it were... Uh, you know, Chaplin, 
And like we said, there's a lot of movies that were not in this that came out that year that were great. And I think The Cameraman by uh, by Buster Keaton would have been interesting to watch. One, two. Right, one. right. So I'm ranking them all in there, and they're all coming below that line, that line of demarcation. And I'm thinking, well, yeah. where is The Patriot going to go in this? Do I just put it at the bottom of the list as the lost movie? And then I was like, you know what? I'm going to make this the line of demarcation, like the middle line between what's a, what's recommended and what's not recommended. And the minute I put it there, it kind of started to clarify some things uh, on the way I was thinking. All right. In the second Academy Awards from 1930, as Rob has called, dubbed it the Schrodinger's Cat uh, Academy Awards, the only one, the lost movie. Uh, people, I, I, I don't care about the hate. I don't care about the hate. Rob, who's got that golden boy? Oh, okay, the, the, the blur. I'm going in on old Arizona. And the second ever Golden Boy for Best Picture goes to two films in Split Decision. In Old Arizona by Raoul Walsh and Irving Cummings. And The Patriot by Ernst Lubitsch. You were wrong again, Louis B. The Broadway Melody is a toilet movie. I... I I know it's a cop out. I know it's a cop out. I would totally, if I didn't pick the Patriot, I would be picking in old Arizona, and that was the the battle in the back of my mind this entire time. How do I pick a movie I didn't watch? I always get mad, you know. Like, are you, if you were like Babylon's just a terrible, the worst movie ever, you know, you you watch an hour of it, I'd be like, oh, you gotta finish the movie and then tell me that it's the worst movie ever, you know? Yeah, sure. Now I've seen three minutes of the Patriot, and it wasn't in order. It was cut up in a trail in a trailer of the movie. But none of the other movies were like in that, even in old Arizona, wasn't in that like I, I'm gonna recommend this movie to people. Like I'm not gonna, we're not gonna hang out at a restaurant and I'm gonna make Rob watch the crowd and in old Arizona, like back to back. There it's a dynamite double feature. I would say, which I feel like you probably would say, is in old Arizona was the best of the worst. I'm I'm going off of, we got Ernst Lubitsch, a guy who's going to show up at other Academy Awards. He's a famous enough director that other directors appreciate him. He is spoken about as having this, the Lubitsch touch. He has kind of like this Alfred Hitchcock kind of appeal uh, about him. The clips that we did see seemed like the art direction had this kind of, uh, you know, this kind of German expressionism, which I, or this, like, a lot of heavy shadows. I feel like, it, and we talked about this beforehand, it was being silent. The silent movies almost were at the peak of their form at this point. Like they're making a lot of challenging, excellent movies. They've mastered what they're capable of, sound through the monkey wrench. And so I I want to say that if they found The Patriot, I would watch it and I would probably enjoy it. Would it rank in the top four? I don't know. That's my rationale. Right. I'm halfway there with you. Really am. And there's like an element of uh, lifetime achievement award to it as well. You know, I don't know what films um, Lubitsch's other Oscar nominated films were up against uh, and whether you would give those the nod over his competition. The Departed is by no stretch my favorite Scorsese film. Uh, It's fine. Yeah. But you know, I think that the Academy was writing a long, a long running wrong 
of not giving Scorsese best picture at some point, a Scorsese film best picture at some point. Um, I get the instinct. I just, I just didn't see the film. It, it, it can be garbage. It can be absolute garbage. Um, and I cannot ignore that fact. Again, it's the Schrodinger's cat movie. It could be brimming with life and it could be, it could be dead on the inside. Um, and I am not flying to Los Angeles to find out if the one third lives up to even the potential that is suggested by the trailer. In old Arizona, it's kind of to me like um, when Green Book wins the year after Moonlight or when um, Coda wins the year after Parasite. It is an insignificant film that does, you know, does not rate in history, doesn't sits below that line of demarcation from the previous Academy Awards. Yeah. But it is um, better than the rest. And, you know, there is actual, um, again, there's some actual polish to it and a story that I cared to follow at all. I'm glad we went this way, Rob, because I feel like, well, first of all, if we both picked The Patriot, I think they'd be burning the show down and the ground to be like, oh, you're both picking a movie that doesn't exist. <laughs> like, I feel like the pitchforks are going to come out about that. You know, I do think I, I 100% agree with you. In the old Arizona was an actual movie like that. I'll th- it's a movie. Those other ones were not <laughs> movies to me. You know, the other thing that weighed me towards The Patriot was the feeling that Louis B. Mayer put his thumb on the Broadway melody and probably was like, yeah, that. Silent movie's not going to win. We're in the sound era. It's a second Academy Awards. Right. You know, politically, a silent film shouldn't be winning Best Picture. You know, again, I'm rationalizing this way too much because sure, I sure. I have to. But no, I mean, I think that you know, to the you know, to your point of this being a positive outcome um, in our uh, you know our disagreement, uh, it does. Uh, Perhaps it is a philosophical quandary that will uh, hover over future uh, Golden Boy installments of, you know, we're having a, re- you know, this is a real challenge to define value. You know, yeah, what we find historically valuable or what we find aesthetically valuable and how we project our own understandings of, you know, where Lubitsch goes in his career. And, you know, our understanding of silent film being sophisticated at the same time that sound film was not at this specific historical moment. I think that the challenge here does, uh, or the challenge and our disagreement here will, um, I don't know, it sets some interesting um, precedents for how we will evaluate, especially these older movies going forward. I'm agree. It's in the Schrodinger's cat, way i agree with your pick but i also don't agree with your pick and i agree with my pick but i also don't agree with my pick because at the back of my mind i'm like kenny you coward you picked the lost movie <laughs> what a cop out and right right and, you know conversely i picked a film conversely i picked a film that i understood to be bad like yeah. or mediocre but what if they find the patriot and it's just full of blackface like that whole movie that's not in the trailer is just this. And then I'm like, I picked that best film. 
<laughs> that's on me because I picked the lost movie. Okay. When we get some sponsors, we can all take a field trip to uh, the UCLA Film Archives and see that's if we can uh, suss out a little bit more. Yeah, um, that's a good idea. Uh, yeah, holler, holler, Venmo me, guys. Yeah, yeah, Venmo us if you want uh, me and Rob to do a road trip to uh, see the see a one or two reels of uh, I think twelve reels of the Patriot. Rob, this was awesome. I'm glad that you were available to do this. Uh, Thank you for having me. This was fun. This was this was good. I think it is. Um, I think that you and I probably, outside of I'm sure there are going to be some other awful Academy Award years that have ten films. Yeah, <laughs> but but we did uh, we did some Yemen's work this time around. We this you had this one was a tough one. I, I think. Having a lost movie, having four not so great ones at the beginning of the sound era, this this was a tough Academy Awards, and this might actually end up being one of the worst Academy Awards, probably. Right? right? We'll see. Yeah, but I Listen, would not be surprised. It is because I don't want to keep doing this if they're all this bad. <laughs> uh, yeah, Rob, this is awesome. We're definitely going to have uh, Rob back on here's expertise. I'm excited to see where Golden Boy goes from here, and to be a part of it. I appreciate it. Do you have any? Uh, do you have any last-minute uh, Golden Boy slogans we can add to the wall? Uh, off the top of your head, no, no pressure. Yes, <laughs> I don't want to watch these movies anymore. Uh, again, Golden Boy episode two. We don't want to watch these. Where's my camera? I don't want to watch these movies. Again. We don't want to watch these movies again. But we do. <laughs> So if you, those of you watching at home that are about to run home and watch these, uh, yeah, you can skip them. Skip to episode three uh, after this. Right. All right, everybody. Thank yeah. you for joining us. Thank right. you, Rob. Thank you. Thank and you very much, Kenny. We'll we'll see, see you soon. We'll see you all in Golden Boy number three. Hey, everyone. That was it. Episode two of Golden Boy. Thanks for watching. Uh, it's a day late. This is a one-time only thing. We had some last-minute uh, things that kind of slowed down the editing here. Hank kind of got in the way, chewed through some cables. Next episode, episode three of Golden Boy, we will be reviewing five different movies. So I wanted to kind of give you guys a heads up so you could do a little bit of homework and be ready for August 1st when we do that. So here are the movies we're going to be watching next episode. Diazraeli by Alfred E. Green. The Love Parade by Ernst Lubitsch, The Big House by George Hill, The Divorcee by Robert Z. Leonard, All Quiet on the Western Front by Lewis Milestone. Very interesting that we get to finally see an Ernst Lubitsch movie next week, and I can find out if I made a horrible, horrible mistake. All right, I'll see you all then, August 1, with a new special guest. Thanks for watching, Golden Boy. Dear Mr. and Miss Everyone, Kenny and Rob has had the second Academy Awards erased from their memory. Please never mention their relationship to early 1930s nominees again. Thank you. Lacuna Inc., 210 East Grand Street, New York, New York, 10019.